Welcome to Tooled Up Education's Researcher of the Month, where Dr. Cathy Weston selects a paper from a notable researcher that will be of interest to parents and school staff everywhere. Welcome, Sonia and Miriam. How are you both? <laughs> Pretty good. Thank you, Cathy. Good to be here. Welcome, Miriam. So we're talking today about one report that you have co-produced. And I just wanted to actually um, contextualize this discussion and just contextualize your report. We're talking about the rise of non-traditional advertising, influencer culture, and really protecting our children from invasive marketing. And really, it was about this piece of research was really about understanding the sort of the pervasive techniques that can be used in this digital world and particular platforms in order to shape our children's thinking as young consumers. So, Miriam, tell us a little bit about how this research came about. So this phenomenon has warranted a lot of concern from parents and advocates around children's access to and participation in social media. We started this research in response to the Digital Culture Media Sports Select Committee, who in the UK is currently conducting an inquiry into influencer culture to examine the power of influencers on social media. And we looked at this phenomenon to understand better how it operates and what impact it has. Professor Livingstone has provided oral evidence on the harms of influencer culture on particularly young audiences. Um, and that's what we're here to talk about today, who are at unique risk of deception if they can't differentiate between advertising and the other forms of entertainment or grasp the pervasive or in the persuasive intent. So just to be absolutely clear, this report is called Sponsored Ads, Monitoring Influencer Marketing to Young Audiences. It's a media policy brief paper 23 produced by LSE with both of your names on it. And we're just going to dive into it now. I personally, as a parent and someone who works in this area, I have never paid attention to this topic of kid influencers because they sound amazing, children being entrepreneurial, having their own YouTube channel. Some of the data in your report was so shocking that some of these very young children have 87 million subscribers. What? You know, it was like a total shock to me. So this is a very interesting report and it's beautifully written, I think, for all audiences. But it's sort of one of the things that made me think about is that YouTube is the new television, isn't it, Sonia? Absolutely. I mean, parents still, you know, remember the days when they watched television and encouraged their children to watch TV for their leisure. But kids are now choosing increasingly to go to YouTube. And the more kids have access to personal devices, tablets and phones as their kind of means of entertainment, the more they go to an app like YouTube. And YouTube is, of course, an incredibly commercial app. It's full of advertising, a lot more advertising than they used to be in the days of you know, when kids mainly watch television. And it's full of new kinds of content. And that's what we really wanted to focus on, that it's not anymore, here's the advert and here's the content, but it's people making their own content and kids making their own content that is kind of both content and advertising and sponsorship all at once. And that really comes through the research. It's very, very hard even for an adult to distinguish between what is a pitch for a product 
or what is an interesting, fun, friendly chat that my child is listening to and distinguishing between who is the actual marketeer in that interaction that came through, I think, your work. Right. And in a way, it's a, it's a completely different business model because the, the, let's say we have a popular kid influencer who has their own followers on a YouTube channel. They can be getting money from YouTube. They can be getting money from the manufacturer and they can be, as it were, promoting themselves to look for other kinds of revenue, other kinds of markets for sponsorship or product placement or future kind of marketing deals. So there's different sources of money supporting that influencer and none of that is transparent. So none of that is something the parent can sit at home and say, yes, well, they're only saying that because they're being paid by X, Y, or Z. And that's that's the real problem. And it's very hard to teach the sort of literacy skills around this because even parents can't distinguish if that child has actually enjoyed it or if they have been paid to do so. Miriam, would you concur with that? Absolutely. With the embedded marketing, like we said, the lines are blurred and they're very high sought after by businesses, the influencers are, precisely because they are not child actors and you cannot tell it's an advertisement. When they're there, they're portraying the information in a way that's fun and engaging. And the research has shown that children find this content authentic and relatable. So when they're seeing someone who's credible, it wouldn't even come to their mind to be critical and to think, that they are promoting a product. Uh, Miriam, it's also sad that we would have to teach a seven-year-old not to believe that lovely character that they're sort of playfully engaging with. So how do we navigate that as well? Well, I think it's important for parents, I know your audience is parents, to sensitize their children to that information, to say, look, these are not child actors, but they are, you know, generating revenue and income from this content. And so once children recognize and understand what the motive is, it may be easier to put their role into a broader context. But there are also advantages. I think we might get kind of siloed into thinking about all of the harms and dangers, but there are opportunities to think of here are children. And if we talk about some of you mentioned 87 million followers like Diana and like Nastia, when you look at their content, some of it is just playing with their siblings and a father talking about his daughter wearing glasses. So not all of the content has to be commercialized in such a way. And that's where the lines can get blurred because when there is a, a different intention behind the video, they might not be able to understand and recognize that subtle integration of a branded product. And I know both of you, there's a whole section in the report about regulation. We'll get to that bit that parents might not be as interested in or passionate about because they don't understand you know, what we're actually referring to here. But you have identified in your report some of the sorts of lifestyles and values that are being promoted by children on those kitty influencers. So tell us about that. Yes, I think one of the harms, challenges, and something that the regulators can regulate against is uh, the content and the promotion of values that aren't necessarily aligned with what society holds as fundamentally dear. One of those could be the consumerist lifestyle where the influencers are set in uh, opulent houses and promoting the accumulation of wealth and toys from an early age. And that's where someone could step in and monitor content, especially when they have such a large following. But with regard to the regulation, I think it's more at this stage to think about 
the aims and whether or not children have that fundamental skill of being able to critically examine a piece of media content and make decisions. You have a podcast where your parents are motivated, engaged, educators come to you for advice. Sonia is also an expert in the topic, but the policymakers and the platforms are absolutely essential to ensure that society's most vulnerable or parents who aren't as engaged get the protection they deserve and aren't exposed to content that could influence them negatively. In other areas of digital life, some research points quite a lot to children who have existing vulnerabilities being vulnerable in the digital space in other ways and areas. Is there something there that we would need to pay attention to? You know, who are the children accessing and being exposed to this sort of content? I would say yes. And I think it it kind of works in several ways. So children perhaps whose lives are more difficult or more deprived might turn more to entertaining content because that's where they get some leisure, some relaxation, some fun. But also they might have fewer people around them with kind of wise messages or giving out sensible warnings. So they might be more naive when they do engage with that content. And they might also be the kids who've got other pressures. You know, they might feel like they're the outsider at school and they kind of need to work out, you know, what is the lifestyle they've got to take on to fit in? And if the kid influencers are telling them you have to buy this, you have to look like this, you have to girls do this and boys do that and everyone's got to be skinny and beautiful. You know, if that's the messages they're getting, that can put a lot of pressure on kids whose lives just don't match up and who don't have those kind of supportive adults around to kind of, you know, give them some alternatives or give them some kind of critical reflection on that perfect world of the YouTube. And Miriam, did you find the reinforcement of harmful stereotypes within the advertising content? Were you paying attention to those sorts of themes within this research? Yes, I think one of the things that we can talk about as you have a an international audience is that YouTube videos can be viewed transnationally. So what is upheld in the UK under standards and regulation isn't the same in a different region or area of the world. So that makes it very difficult to monitor and regulate. So really having a firm foundation, having parents, educators, and persons who support carers for the children, who can sensitize them and make them more critical and aware that this is perhaps a unidimensional or flattened representation of life could help them better understand that that is not a, an accurate reflection of reality. But as it currently stands, it's hard being transnationally viewed to put any system in place to monitor the content and to monitor the representations to ensure a high quality enriching experience for all children who go online. There was another absolutely fascinating bit of your report talking about parasocial relationships with now most parents and educators, we probably wouldn't be familiar with that terminology. I was absolutely fascinated by that. So in the report, it says the parasocial relationship can develop between the kid influencer and the child viewer. Parasocial interaction is the thought, emotion, and action that a child experiences during media exposure to that influencer. And it's really about they almost believe that they have a relationship, a sort of an emotional connection with that person. Isn't that right? I was going to say, you know, one of the one of the things that's kind of frustrating about this whole field is 
you know, that, that parasocial interaction can be used for such good. It's kind of when we create stories for children, when we create content that is going to stimulate their imagination and, you know, open their eyes to new things, we would, of course, we'd put characters in there that they, or actors or people that they can connect with that will kind of represent them or take them on the journey. And they can absolutely feel they have a relationship with the hero or the heroine in the show. But in, influencer culture sometimes that is you know sometimes it is inspiring and the relationship is beneficial for the child and sometimes it's commercially distorted or commercially exploitative and the child feels they have a connection with someone who's actually just out to make money you know there's no easy line for parents and actually there's no easy line for any of us really to say but from a child's point of view children are trusting Children kind of see, you know, they're used to seeing life on the screen now. They're used to seeing real people on the screen, their friends on the screen. You know, there's no way of saying anymore, that's not the real world. That's something fake. Of course, it is real to them. And they put their trust in the characters that they get to know and feel attached to. And sometimes it's beneficial, sometimes it's not. And I think this report sort of encourages us and inspires us to think about, wait a minute, just hold on a minute, what is the messaging? And you're less arguing about the sort of the morals around it and more about the transparency, the honesty, the authenticity of that relationship. Miriam. Yes. When I think back to when I was a child growing up in the 80s and I had cartoon characters and superheroes, they weren't real. They didn't exist in the real world. So it was quite easy for me to make that distinction. For children today, it not only is there, but there's a repeated exposure at any time. So it's not just an 8 a.m. slot on Saturday morning where you encounter this figure. Anytime one person wants to interact, they can go online, they can like, they can comment. So there is a perceived ability to connect with this person, which is slightly confusing for a child to realize that they may not be interacting back. And so to understand that that's not a play date and that's not their friend, if it were, is something that parents, educators need to work on to show, okay, this is the person and this is a channel, right? It's really just a shift from television to YouTube. The numbers have gone up significantly, but what can one do for the parasocial relationship? It's just, again, speaking to the children and recognizing that this is part of their job. And while they share many similar and common characteristics, which is why they find them relatable, authentic, and credible, they are there to make money and to, to do their job. And as Sonia mentioned, there's so much good that this platform could do if we start paying attention to the way in which children are using it. Mm. Absolutely. And that's, you know, that was the original kind of hope, I guess, and, and why it is that parents, you know, give their children access. And, you know, there's so much talk about creativity, about finding out new things, about kind of becoming part of new communities. And it just becomes a really difficult decision for parents both to kind of decide, you know, is there some value in this content or is it too commercial, too much trying to persuade us of something that isn't good? And is it right for, for their child? Because parents also have to make the decision for their child, don't they? Is this too much for my child? Or this is showing a lifestyle that, given what we have available, we couldn't possibly afford. So, you know, it, it creates a sense of, of injustice or, or being left out. So parents have got to kind of tailor that world a bit to what their child is ready for, what they're old enough for, and what, what makes sense in their 
it is very affluent, very kind of white, very comfortable world that gets portrayed in YouTube. And many kids don't see themselves reflected there. And yet they build those parasocial relationships with the kid influencers in a way that could be quite weird in relation to what you know well they know what they live with so on the home front parents need to read i would encourage them to read your report it's very readable it's engaging it's shocking in places you go what you know how can all of these children be so influential i know that there are many many parents fielding questions from young children saying mommy i want to be a kiddie influencer i can have 86 million subscribers a year so you can understand the pressures for parents when faced with this child is making money, being entrepreneurial, you know, at 10. Right. And this is a, a possible way of making money that was never there when they were, you know, the parents were young. Um, they might know how to kind of field questions on, you know, how do I become this or that in society because they've lived it. But this is a world people don't understand the business model. But, you know, you can be sure most kids make nothing out of trying and trying and trying to become a creator and trying and trying to build up their platform. And then a few make it so big that their lives are, are kind of taken over by, you know, behind them, there is the production company, there is the recording schedule, there is all kinds of financial. It's it's hard to say that they are left free to be a child anymore. So it's, it is lose-lose in a way. Now, we do have a lot of regulation that people will recognize around food and beverage marketing. So are you both hopeful that we are moving into a new space where regulation will enter this area? I think there's going to be a sort of an audit of what's going on by the parliamentary committee, certainly in England. Is that the case, Miriam? Is that ongoing? From my understanding, the ASA will monitor all of the ads. And what they have found is that there has been improvement, especially if you're looking at HFSS, talking about the foods that are high in fat and salt and sugar. The industry has come a long way in ensuring that those advertisements are not you know, viewed by children. So that's a step in the right direction. But this is ever evolving. The industry is changing and the government and the regulators need to stay up to speed and almost one step ahead, which is really hard in this type of digital environment. But what can they regulate for it? What are the harms? What are the risks to children who are putting in that time? Labor is its own area. But I think with what the DCMS is trying to to regulate and what they're inquiring into now is what can the platforms be held accountable for? And then also, you know, we can advise parents, educators to do certain things, but what can advertisers stick to? And how is that hard when the advertising may come from international sources? So it's really thinking about, okay, it needs to apply in a local context and how can that ensure that it is maintained and held up to Britain and ACA's standard. Are there any top sort of uh, countries that have got it right? Anybody doing a great job in terms of regulating this area? No, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. I think there's a lively debate happening right now in America as Miriam has said, we're having this debate in Britain. And there are, you know, there are some efforts in some countries, but in a lot of countries, this is still kind of quite low on the priorities. There's more attention, you know, and I can understand why, but more attention going into addressing platforms in terms of pornography, in terms of, you know, kind of stranger contact and so on. And those are real, you know, those are very significant problems. But the commercialization of childhood and the way in which 
all content for kids is becoming also advertising and persuasion, you know, that matters as well. And sadly, it does seem to be that regulation has to be fought for in each country separately. Okay. Yeah, though, though, just to say, you know, a platform like YouTube is a global platform. And so when it makes a change, sometimes its changes roll out everywhere. I think that phrase, the sort of, did you say the commodification of childhood? Yeah. That is a phrase that does resonate with parents. They don't like it. They don't like the word that I'm thinking about is manipulation, that mm. there's a manipulation in marketing that we can understand in general, but we we haven't yet applied to that digital space because a lot of parents don't watch YouTube with their children. They're making the dinner, they're leaving them to it. The advert is often absolutely mandatory to watch and that child doesn't know how to skip it. But this advertising is embedded within that entertainment and that's where it becomes so complex. Right. And experts can look at the creator and not know, you know, they're putting on their makeup. Is the makeup company sponsoring putting on the makeup or are they not sponsoring it? How is anyone to know? And even in Britain, where there is regulation on that, what we found in our report is that the majority of the times it's not labeled properly. It's not transparent in a way that is effective. So, you know, it's a big ask for parents. They've got to identify that this is an influencer. They've got to look for whether there, you know, is any indication that it's being paid for. Then they've got to advise their child what to do about, you know, by then it's gone. It's the next content. But one of the lovely things about your report is at the end, everybody likes things to do, action points, and they're all spelt out nice and clearly. I've highlighted the section for parents and educators and children, indeed. Parents need to monitor their children's use, reduce contact to advertising through discussions, filtering, talk about advertising literacy, strengthen their skills, et cetera, et cetera. But what would you say about what policymakers should be doing in this area, Sonia? I think we've reached the point where this is too big for parents to deal with by themselves. And transparency is really great. And we need a lot more. We need to understand what's being paid for and persuasive and so on, as we've as we've said. But there's just too much commercial content also coming at kids. So I think we also need to somehow reduce the amount of commercialization, commodification of kids' media or create or take some of the profit and create spaces where children can have a kind of a commercial free experience and parents know how to steer them towards that. And we need to kind of pay attention to some of what those commercial messages are, because some of them are completely inappropriate for kids. Some of them are about, you know, they're kind of sexist or they push them into stereotypes or they're for alcohol and and you know within a kid's show so you know there's there's kind of layers of, of regulation that are needed but this is too big a task for parents who just need to be where can they encourage their kids to view that isn't going to exploit be commercially exploited mm -hmm. and did you look at what what has been the response to your report miriam well I think when I mentioned that I'm researching this topic, influencers and kidfluencers, I think society in general in the West, the, the reaction to this is, 
oh my goodness, you know, it's kind of a vapid wasteland. And I think the tide, the cultural tide has already turned in viewing this negatively. Someone's commoditizing childhood. And I think there's a pushback. And even within the DCMS inquiry, if one looks at the sessions, I think the tone and the discourse from some of the representatives indicates that this is a negative impact on society. So in my view, I think people are understanding, knowing that we need to push for higher quality content. I think YouTube is also on board with trying to demarcate content that is lower quality and not promoting it in such a way as content that is more engaging and enriching and educational for children. To take, for example, one specific phenomenon, the unboxing craze, which has taken off. It's a very lucrative revenue stream where children just play with toys. It's really hard to understand if that's just a child playing with a toy or if it's the uh, highest paid influencer, Ryan, who makes $30 million a year playing with the toys. Other children will aspire to be like that. And then all of a sudden, it's a kind of mass cultural phenomenon for kids unboxing toys and playing with them on the internet. Is there any way to move out of that space and increase, elevate the content so that society is moving forward and it's not pigeonholed in this kind of commercialized area? What does that look like? What can these influencers do? And can their platform be harnessed for good? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like we're almost back to where we were at the beginning of the internet. This is a fantastic thing. Everything goes crazy. And then we end up back in a space where we go, wait a minute, <laughs> there could be harmful outcomes and there could be you know things that we can work for to good. So it sounds like you two are leading the way in drawing all of our attention to this issue. And it does sound like the government certainly in, in Britain's listening. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and we are we are waiting to see what decision they're going to make. And they're, they're considering decisions both about protecting the children who become the influencers so their lives don't get overtaken and they never get to go to school because they're, you know, making commercial commercially profitable content the whole time. So there's kind of protecting the kids on the screen and then there's thinking about what's needed for the kids watching and in front and how to kind of moderate that and provide better guidance for parents and whether there should be bans, let's say, on content for uh, commercial content for, for young children. So what's the sort of next step for this report? It's out there. We can all download it and read it. Well, I, I don't know what kind of feedback you get from your, your listeners, Kathy. I'm just kind of thinking it'll be, it'll be great to kind of get some views. I haven't seen very much consultation with parents on what they think about this phenomenon. And probably they have lots of very different views, but it will be interesting to kind of get a parent perspective on what's needed, what would help them. Yeah. And what they think is too much. Parents don't talk a lot about what their children are viewing on YouTube. YouTube just seems to be a sort of a, a dustbin of material that parents mm. just walk on by. We're not paying. The, the, you know, the clips change a lot. There's a, a circularity to what they're looking at. And I think it, this is just focuses the mind because certainly during the pandemic, so many children spent so much time online that this is really uh, timely, I think. The spring is coming, you know, thinking about let's just reset, let's look at what we're doing online, how we're interacting with it. Are we happy to receive that, to have our children to be exposed to that sort of marketing? And I think looking at it through a marketing angle is interesting for parents because normally they would just think about things in terms of harms, digital harms and sexual predators online, whereas this is what messaging is going into those little brains. Right. And we've traditionally, in, in the days when television was dominant, we had 
at least in many Western countries, we had a framework that said you don't directly market to kids. You might market to parents about this would be great to buy for, but you don't directly market to kids. So this whole kind of influencer culture, this whole YouTube culture has just you know, swept the carpet from under parents' feet in that regard. And now all of these companies are speaking directly to kids. So yes, it's time for parent voice and for some regulation, but also to find spaces for how that could be, as Miriam said, used for good, because, you know, there's a lot of energy and creativity there. But what is going to be good for kids? What's going to be fun and imaginative and stimulating? Mm. And I suppose further down the line, I love the idea of encouraging activism amongst children. They can push back on it. This can be a school project. Teachers could take some of that information from your report and use it in a PSHE lesson, frankly. <laughs> right, right, they could. And also that now that increasingly everyone's kind of in their own rabbit hole of, you know, the algorithm send one person this way and one person that I think just comparing what are you offered? What, what does YouTube recommend to you compared to you compared to your classmate? Because people don't realize how the algorithms are taking them down this rabbit hole. So, and you know, the advertising and the persuasion is getting ever more tailored so just all get your phones out and compare what what the recommendation is and that would be media literacy i think as well children are now acutely aware that whatever they mention in front of their digital device i have one in the room at the minute suddenly an advert might appear on a parent's phone they're understanding in fact they're the ones alerting parents Mm. to some of those connections so we're all being manipulated in many different ways. And just as a family unit auditing, our relationship to digital media is something to to pay attention to. So listen, thank you very much to both of you for doing such a brilliant piece of work. It is so beautifully written and that we're always grateful for that as parents because we can actually enjoy it and read it. And we understand the language and it does inspire us with those points at the very end of the report where we can take action as parents or educators. So thanks very much to both of you. And we look forward to speaking to you again about your work and everything else that will flow from it. Thank you so much. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.